I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter about the latest situation in Ukraine with respect to human rights, with respect to potential war crimes, and what we've seen in the streets of Bukha, these harrowing images in Ukraine. We have with us Marty Flax, who is the Kasravi Chair in Principled Internationalism and the Director of the CSIS Human Rights Initiative. Marty, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So, Marty, I want to just get right to it. President Zelensky has, you know, been very clear yesterday in a, in a speech, today's Monday, where he said, you know, look at the evidence, you're killing our people. You're targeting our civilians. You're killing our people indiscriminately. Look at the images in Bukha. And then today, President Biden, we were all seeing these images on television and in print electronically. And then today, President Biden said we should be thinking about Vladimir Putin as a war criminal. What about all this? Is there a, a way to hold him accountable for this? Of course, the Russian media is saying that these images are fake. Yeah, well, I mean, look, President Zelensky, President Biden and others are absolutely right about what's happening in Ukraine. It's absolutely horrific. It is absolutely pretty clear evidence of war crimes at a minimum. And we certainly have to investigate the possibility that these are crimes against humanity. And there does need to be accountability for them. I think there's no lack of evidence. There's going to be no lack of kind of witnesses and information and, and legal context to draw on to make a case against individual Russians for committing crimes in Ukraine. And then the question, as you said, is how do we get to a situation where individuals are held accountable? And that is a much longer road. That is a much harder road to travel. Proving the case will not be the difficulty, but putting defendants in chairs in a docket, that's going to be the struggle that we're going to have to continue to chip away at for not just weeks and months, but probably for years. Yeah, this isn't Slobodan Milosevic, who we can bring before the International Criminal Court. This is Vladimir Putin, who you know, may never be able to really leave Russia again, except for possibly to go to China. What is that road? What does that road look like? Is there a way of really bringing him to justice, given you know his extraordinary circumstances? So I think we have to, first of all, kind of paint the picture of what these legal mechanisms are that could potentially hold either Putin himself or other Russians accountable, because there's a number of legal developments that are happening simultaneously that are potentially important and potentially could deliver accountability. So obviously, we have the International Criminal Court, which has opened an investigation into war crimes and crimes against humanity at the request of 41 members of the Rome Statute, they have jurisdiction because Ukraine has uh, had previously granted them jurisdiction over crimes committed in their territory. And so that's extremely important because of the reach of that court. If arrest warrants are issued by the ICC against individual Russians, that means that technically all 123 members of the ICC are obligated to turn over those potential defendants, those accused individuals to the ICC if they come onto their territory. So that particular mechanism has a lot of reach, but it's not the only one in play. 
national courts also have jurisdiction here. So Ukraine itself has opened an investigation, a special procedure to try and investigate war crimes, crimes against humanity and genocide in its territory. And it could certainly prosecute individuals, particularly anyone that it might capture in the context of, of this war. So if they are able to capture senior Russian military officials on the ground or even civilian officials, they could try them domestically in Ukraine. Other states um, have universal jurisdiction statutes, so they can open investigations into crimes. And if they were able to secure any defendants, they could also prosecute them. So Germany, for example, is looking into potential prosecution of Russians for, for war crimes. And then there are some sort of quasi-legal mechanisms like the UN Human Rights Council that's opening its own investigation and trying to understand the bigger picture. So there's a lot of legal machinery kind of whose wheels are spinning at this point to try and kind of set up an international system of accountability. All of those legal systems do require defendants. And so it requires either someone to be captured on the battlefield or someone to be turned over to the court because they traveled to a country that's willing to do that. Or eventually, you know, a change of government in Russia that would render them more supportive of this process. Short of those things, it is going to be very difficult to secure, you know, senior politicians or senior military officials in in actual criminal tribunals. But it's obviously very important that we and the rest of the West, and especially Ukraine, continue to document the evidence that we're seeing. And so, you know, in the fog of war like this, what happens to the evidence? Do lawyers line it up? Like, how, how does this work? You know, we're fortunate in 2022 that we have a lot of means of of collection of evidence. We have obviously the kind of satellite imagery and drone imagery that has been taken of what's happening from the air. We have an incredible amount of social media uh, traffic that is individuals on the ground reporting what they're seeing, taking pictures of what they're seeing, video of what they're seeing. And we have eyewitnesses, right? And in the end, you know, like so many criminal cases, you know, it's going to come down to witnesses who will have to testify, including victims who are able to testify about what happened to them individually. All of that evidence does need to be collected and maintained. And that's certainly happening both by the United States and European partners, as well as by the ICC and by non-governmental organizations. So there will be a very large sort of trove of documents and information available to those who will eventually try and prosecute these cases. Now, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan just came before the White House press corps in the three o'clock hour Eastern time on Monday. We're now talking just after that around four o'clock. Jake said that, you know, this is not a genocide as they see it so far, even though president called it a war crime this morning. But he said that they're monitoring the situation. What does the administration need to do here next, in your view? So there's a few things that they could be doing, some of which they've already started. So in terms of what the ICC needs, for example, in its case, the prosecutor has asked for funding. They've asked for personnel. They're going to need, for example, Ukrainian and Russian-speaking staff to do their investigation, to talk to witnesses. The U.S. can support them with those resources. And the U.S. can be declassifying as much intelligence as it possibly can to help them build their case. And I don't just mean by that the kind of images and documentation of the crimes committed, but what really what the what a prosecutor needs is evidence of who committed the crime. Because you can't prosecute a country, you can't prosecute even a military unit 
you have to prosecute an individual. And so what they need is to, is help from the U.S. and Europeans to understand which unit was in this particular location at this particular time, who is the commander, who gave the order, what that order was, what the policy and procedure of the Russian military has been, what their approach has been at the command level and even at the political level in terms of how they're approaching that this war in order to determine whether there is a policy of, for example, targeting civilians specifically, whether there's a policy of, of killing civilians, of committing torture, of committing rape, the kinds of horrific things that we've seen happen on the ground. They need to be able to document who's responsible for giving those orders or allowing those crimes to be committed so that they can target those particular individuals for prosecution. But just to take a step back more broadly in terms of what the U.S. can be doing, in addition to supporting documentation, like we already talked about, supporting prosecution as much as possible. There's a couple other things that are important. One is we have to think about accountability more broadly than criminal prosecution. And the kinds of sanctions and restrictions that the U.S. is leading the charge on imposing with its European allies on you know, asset forfeitures and seizures of bank account freezing, of travel bans, those kinds of things need to continue to be in place, not just for the duration of this war, long or short, but after the war concludes as its own accountability mechanism, right? So whether or not we can get defendants in chairs, Russian leadership needs to continue to feel the consequences of their actions for a very long time. And so we need to continue to chip away at where are those hidden assets and where, how are the ways that we can continue to make this painful individually, personally for the Russians who are responsible for this. And then the other thing is just to harken back to the point you made earlier, this is a very long process. Justice is going to take a very long time and that requires sustained attention. And so what the U.S. is doing and needs to continue to do is keep this issue on the radar of the public to continue to keep it on the radar and the top priorities of our allies and continue to keep it on the agenda of places like the U.N. Human Rights Council and others where some countries in the world may be ready to move on at some point. We need to keep it on the at the top of the agenda so that when we get to a point where we can get accountability, we have all the pieces in place to do that. Marty, you're a former National Security Council staffer. You're an attorney. Has there ever been a situation in recent memory where the United States has been confronted with some a war crime on this scale that we feel that we really need to act on? Well, it's an interesting question because we've certainly seen a large number of atrocities carried out around the world, you know, most recently in places like Syria. We've seen atrocities in Ethiopia very recently. The Rohingya as well. Absolutely. Rohingya in Myanmar. When I worked in government, we I worked on Sudan for a very long time where the first Bush administration and then the Obama administration took the atrocities in Darfur very, very seriously. You know, that was a situation where even though we were not a member of the ICC, even though the George W. Bush administration sort of uh, withdrew our signature on the Rome Statute and very actively did not cooperate with the ICC, we allowed that case to be referred to the ICC anyways, because we, we saw the situation as so serious and so dire this is a, a step further than that, right? This is us actively pushing for the ICC to take action despite our sort of lukewarm position on the ICC generally. And we've seen that on a bipartisan basis. So we saw a Republican Senator Lindsey Graham introduce a resolution in support of the ICC investigation in Ukraine. We saw that pass unanimously through the Senate. 
including encouraging the U.S. to turn over intel to the ICC and, and to support accountability mechanisms for Russia. So this is certainly, certainly the U.S. is in its posture much more forward-leaning and much more assertive in its support of international justice mechanisms than we've seen even in, in other places where it's taken them very seriously. So this really is different. It's different. It's also, I think, worth pointing out that it's it's different in a sense that you know, the types of atrocities that we're seeing and the scale of atrocities that we're seeing in a very, very short amount of time is really remarkable, right? We're only less than six weeks into this war, right? And we've already seen kind of two phases of conflict and really of, of war crimes, right? We had the air war, if you will, where we had weeks and weeks of just constant aerial bombardment of cities that was quite clearly both targeting civilians in some cases, and then just sort of indiscriminately, disproportionately harming civilians. That continues to this day in some cities in Ukraine. But at the same time, we're now starting to see the evidence of the crimes committed as part of the ground war, where you have over the last four weeks uh, or so Russians actually occupying territory and the damage that they caused to civilians individually on the ground. And that combination of kind of the massive aerial destruction, as well as what now looks like massive atrocities on the ground, is something that, you know, we haven't seen very often as recently. So the next thing for the administration, you know, Jake Sullivan said, the next stage of this conflict may be very protracted. And we could be looking at weeks, months, we could be looking at a very long time. And he told reporters today it's likely going to continue to include, quote, wanton and brazen attacks on civilian targets. Is there anything that we can really do or should be doing? We know this is going to happen. So what are we going to do about it? Yeah, it's a really tough question because it's quite clear that this is part of Russia's military strategy. We knew that sort of going in when this conflict started. And you know, short of engaging our, our own military forces to stop it, you know, it's going to be very difficult to convince the Russians not to continue to do that. I think, you know, at some point we have to try and get, you know, use our influence to, to convince Russian leadership that it's a futile effort, that sort of the scorched earth policy that they seem to have adopted, you know, isn't going to get them what they want and is only going to make the situation worse on the back end. And so maybe possible that, you know, some Russian military leaders, some politicians, we could start to peel them off from Putin, you know, with the scale of atrocities that's happening and the kind of the futility of that. But no, I think it's it's very difficult. And I think it's likely that as the Ukrainians take back more territory and we see Russians sort of pull out, we're going to see a lot more of the kinds of atrocities that we saw from Bucha this weekend in other towns as well, because this is certainly a, a pattern and practice of the Russian military and in Ukraine. This mirrors what they did in Chechnya, what they did in Syria. So they can't fight kinetically um, effectively with Ukrainians on the ground, but they can pull back, reposition and start indiscriminately killing all over the place. That's basically what their strategy is. Am I right about that? What's interesting is, you know, and the evidence will need to come out through these investigations of you know, what was driving the war crimes that were happening on the ground in these suburbs around Kiev and in other places where we start to see, you know, the, the mass graves being covered and things like that. You know, is this a matter of sort of the deployment of these paramilitary forces and a lack of, uh, you know, interest in, in command and control and sort of letting people loose 
or is this kind of an intentional strategy? We don't have a very good sense of what the motivation was for that level of destruction on the ground. In the air, you're absolutely right. I think there's a very clear strategy of, you know, of just bombardment of cities, just absolute destruction as much as possible, both to intimidate residents and prevent sort of potential counterattack when they do move in on the ground. With all of these civilian deaths and the the images so stark of mass graves and, you know, bodies laying in the streets, how much longer is the international community going to really sit around and, you know, impose sanctions and things like that without us actually, you know, doing something more? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think one thing to think about is, you know, as we see the Russian force ground forces start to move out and Ukrainian forces retake territory, do we find a way of at least sending in some some forces behind them to kind of reinforce what's happening to sort of put gentle pressure, if you will, on the situation where we're not directly engaging Russians, but we start to introduce you know, sort of friendly military forces on the ground, if nothing else, to help with the kind of recovery that's going to need to take place. You know, the level of destruction in these cities that we're now seeing as the Ukrainians take them back, the amount of money and effort it's going to take to rebuild is something that is going to take, you know, a a military level of effort. It's going to take a tremendous amount of money and time and resources and organization to rebuild, and they're going to need a lot more support in doing so. And so there may be ways that we can sort of introduce those kinds of supportive forces and put some pressure on. But, you know, whether or not we kind of come in militarily as the Russians are are departing and sort of directly confront them, I haven't yet seen much evidence that the administration is interested in going that direction. There doesn't seem to be an appetite by Republicans or Democrats on the Hill in the administration for any type of real escalation. But at the same time, we're sitting and we're watching you know, these horrific images and I, I think feeling kind of helpless. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's absolutely horrific to watch. And, you know, the the fastest way to save lives in this conflict is to come to some kind of negotiated settlement. And so really doubling down on efforts to push these what feel like nascent but potential peace talks further down the road and really try and understand what the red lines are and if there is an avenue towards a negotiated resolution, I think is really important because the the reality is even if we decided to engage militarily, the Russians have more than ample opportunity to continue to commit atrocities. And so, you know, the fastest way to protect people is to find a way to end this conflict. Um, And so I think that really needs to be the priority. The UN Security Council meets tomorrow, Tuesday. Do you expect any movement out of that body? I would be surprised. I think we may see some really powerful statements, and I hope we do. I think there's the the symbolic value of some of the things coming out of the UN Security Council have been really important early on. There was a statement by the Kenyan ambassador to the UN, Ambassador Kimani, laying out why the issue of sovereignty is so important to African countries and with their legacy of colonialism and the borders that were artificially drawn and the, the danger of a colonial or other country deciding to arbitrarily change those borders and how personally they took that. That was a really powerful moment at the Security Council. And so we may see some of those 
I think in the in the coming days, we'll see a vote at the UN General Assembly to remove Russia from the UN Human Rights Council. And I think that's really important, both symbolically, because it's absolutely appalling that Russia can sit on the Human Rights Council while it's committing these crimes in Ukraine, but also as a continued demonstration of the international consensus on this issue, that the international community stands fairly united in condemning Russian aggression and condemning this war. And so I think it's going to be important to watch that vote and to see, you know, if we can continue to sustain those really high levels of support and hopefully even build out some support from countries that abstained on the earlier resolutions. Marty Flax, thank you so much for helping us understand this a little bit better, a situation that is just about impossible to understand. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 